It's the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 78. Living with J Frames. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network, along with uh, brother Rob Beckman and uh, Riley Bowman, Matt Marister, all those great guys, part of that network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners. Tackle them from the perspective of concealed carriers and law enforcement officers. Today, I'm joined by Rob Garrett, RG, my brother from Georgia. Uh, we're going to talk living with J-frames, you know? Everybody, the, the snub thing, man, it's like a thing, right? It's uh, And it seems like uh, a lot of uh, newer generation is starting to key in that it's a pretty valid thing. But we're going to specifically talk about the Smiths, but... Uh, First, today's sponsor, CCW Safe, Intercode Off-Duty Tenant Checkout for 10% off your membership. Sign up today. EDC Belt Company, edcbeltco.com, the foundation belt, the most comfortable, functional concealed carry belt on the market, hands down. Ah, the Guardian Conference. Ladies and gentlemen, the Guardian Conference is coming up. It is right around the corner, September it's it's coming fast and uh early bird pricing is still up you know this sounds like a pitch but uh it is because i'm teaching there man i'll be there i will be there as will edc belt company they're a sponsor of the uh the conference this year as they were last year and there will be a booth there so uh there may be some special colors coming out you have to be there to check it out also if you've listened to previous podcast uh brother wayne dobbs will be there teaching too so it's going to be a good time and it's worth 20 hours oh i'm sorry 24 hours of uh council law enforcement education and training for oklahoma uh 20 hours or 24 hours of continuing ed so (laughs) come get all your hours this year right don't wait till the well i guess it is kind of towards the end of the year but uh the concealed carry podcast giveaway links in the show notes for those of you who sign up you got to sign up weekly uh they're giving away lots of good gear they gave away a hat and dummy ammo i mean spark flashlights med kits it's the whole nine yards so anyway without further ado we're gonna bring in my uh text message chain buddy <laughs> Uh, Rob Garrett, welcome back again for, we'll call this round two. I was, we were talking off air. I, when I was editing the original version of this podcast, it ended up in the wastebasket once in a row. So welcome back, Rob. I already introduced us in the pre-show, so we're ready to go on living with J frames. Well, it's good to be back. And, uh, we always, Seem to have a wonderful pre-show chat about everything from bourbon to ex-wives to to, uh, to guns. So we're well, off and running. Well, at least you, you you know two out of the three of those you're 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 okay on uh, the gun side. We may <laughs> we may have to stage an intervention, but but you well, know a good friend of mine when it comes to J frames, you know I say I have a, an affection for him, and he says I have an affliction. So that's been a standing joke for years. Well, <laughs> affliction is a good word for it. And, um, you know, to, to add a little context to it, you know, the J frame being the smaller frame, Smith and Wesson's five shot, typically five shot 38s. Uh, although I do have one of those model 17s in a four inch, that's a, uh, four inch 22 long rifle in a J frame. So it's kind of a neat neat gun that belonged to my granddad but aside from that i've carried them for years and it seems to be for me that uh culture is starting to kind of uptick again and people are starting to explore the smaller framed uh revolvers again and i completely blame db and chuck haggard so chuck daryl Mark Fricky. Dobbs, Dobbs a little bit. Mark, for sure. Um, you've raised the, uh, you know, you've raised a profile. You know, primary and secondary did a three-hour-plus marathon discussion 
with with Daryl and some other folks on nothing but snubs several years ago. Mm-hmm. So there's seems to be a lot of interest, and I think that's that's mirrored or or confirmed by the fact of how many of them are out there. Yeah. You know, from from Ruger Charter, Taurus, Smith, Kimber. You know, I just the choices are are varied and. None of them are truly bad. I mean, e- even your quote entry level, if you want to use that term, um, are pretty good guns for the occasional shooter. I think at reasonable yeah. price points. Yeah, I read uh, I read a publication that Smith and Wesson is shareholders meeting or something, and. Uh, one of their largest sellers was the four, four, two and six, four, two. Absolutely. Which I think if you had said that 10 years ago, people would have went, no way that's, you know, that's ludicrous. But, uh, those two guns were some of their leading sales items, which tells me people are still, people are still interested in it. And the, the people that seem to be most intimately acquainted with the, the, the five shot, the, specifically the J frame are older cops <laughs> of which we both kind of fit that genre. So <laughs> kind of, sort of, I mean, I started my journey. I came on the department in 78 and I had a nickel model 36 that I carried in a Bianchi ankle rig. And the, the, the 36 is the, the traditional steel, Chief Special Exposed Hammer, mm-hmm. one and seven eighths inch barrel, five shot thirty eight. It was not rated for plus P. Um, I bought a. I really wanted a model sixty, which is was the stainless version. Yeah. But at the time, the feds were buying up all the sixties, and even in seventy eight, you were paying four hundred fifty dollars for a sixty if you could find one, wow. where a thirty six was around a, probably one hundred fifty bucks, give or take. Yeah, my so my time in the my dad's gun shop from eighty seven to eighty nine, which yeah, I still have fond memories of. You know, I was between the age of seven and nine. Uh, that was kind of the you know, cops were still getting issued wheel guns, and they'd graduate the academy, and one of the first things they'd do is go, "I need a chief special. I need an off duty gun. I need a backup gun," and. That was in the area where there wasn't tiny, reliable semi-auto pistols. Um, so consequently, and I, I can remember Jay, for, you know, the, the model 36, uh, you know, at nickel or stainless, they, they were, you know, $10 more or less one way or the other. And, and they were typically around $200 in the eighties. It mm-hmm. was, it was not, uh, not uncommon to see used ones float through for, for 200 bucks and but that was kind of the you know i guess like today guys might go buy a glock 26 or a 43x or a 48 to match their service gun or that or a 365 to match their 320 uh that it was very common so so you started there in 78. My, my first venture was, uh, I got in on that modern newfangled 340 PD and I punished myself with 357 mags a few times. So, but, and that was in 2002. So, you know, 20 years ago, but 78, our entire detect, detective division was care. It was issued J frames. That's all they, and they were, they were issued in some kind of Buckheimer yeah. thumb brake holster black basket weed so it looked similar to everything else maybe a dump pouch and you know 158 lead hollow point and maybe later some 125 remington with the scalloped jacket uh-huh. and they're serving homicide warrants and they're doing dope deals and taking down bad guys with nothing but J frames and occasionally you get a cowboy that checked out an 870 or in that, in those days, we still had some leftover Winchester model 12s, but you know, the idea of kicking the door at two in the morning on a homicide suspect with a five shot J frame, and that's just what they did. 
That's and, just what they did. Right. The, uh, <laughs> that it just funny to look through, uh, the history of law enforcement you know, and, and trends and, and stuff like that. And it wasn't like bad guys didn't have semi-auto pistols. It, you know, <laughs> it wasn't like they weren't taking nickel 1911s off of bad guys, uh, you know, with blued steel 38s. Uh, so just a different time. Um, I never, uh, you I know, mean, bad guys love the high power. They, high, they, yeah. they were rocking high cap magazine, you know, high cap nine millimeters back in the sixties and seventies. Mm-hmm. Of course. So were a bunch of your narc cops, you know? Yeah, that's, but that's, you know, that's just a time and a piece of our history that a lot of people, I don't know if they discounted or they just didn't know that, uh, you know, my, my dad growing up, I carried the J frame that he carried. I, I carried almost every day. Um, he was issued that gun in 1985 and I watched him do stuff that I would not even consider doing with a J frame and a speed strip. Yeah. I mean that, that just what he had when he had it, you know? So yeah, we can, we can overthink gear sometimes, but, but we can. And, you know, maybe we can make some points tonight. I know DB's talked about it. You had Hanny on and he talked about, you know, backups and whatnot. And, uh, so I try to not, restate so much of of what they've said but you know it can serve as for your armed citizen or your off-duty police officer can serve as you know a primary it can serve as a backup it can serve as for lack of a better term a stash gun i don't mean a throw down for those that want to not quite understand the difference but you can take take a revolver set it on a closet shelf set it somewhere else Maybe you leave it at your your cabin in the mountains, or your your condo at the beach, or Lake Havasal. Yeah. And you know, you can leave it there for five years, and you're guaranteed when you pick it up, if you need it, it's going to go bang. Like like Daryl says, a fire extinguisher gun. Yeah. And uh, you know, now, now that's true of all revolvers, not just J frames, obviously. But there's some some real advantages, and um, you know, I still carry one. While while I generally, my city has uh, like a lot of other cities. We're 220,000, 200 square miles. We've had a, in the last three years, we've had a uh, marked increase in shootings and gun violence. So most of the time, if I'm going very far at all, I've got a G19 or a G26 with at least one spare mag. But every day I put on a, a Galco ankle glove with a, with a, a model 642 that's been slightly reworked. It's nothing fancy. It was refinished because the aluminum frames with that clear finish just wears like garbage and it looked horrible. And so when I was at Wilson combat in 03, they blasted the, uh, the cylinder in the yoke and cleaned it up. And then they did their armor tough on the rest of the gun. And I carried it. Uh, maybe that was 13. I get bought the gun in 03 and I'm still carrying that same gun. Yeah. And you pick it up and it fits your hand right. And you know how that trigger rolls and um, it just works. You know, the great thing about the, the J frame series is you got three different configurations. Each one of them had its own advantages and disadvantages. The traditional 6036 Chief Special that has the exposed hammer. And then you've got the bodyguard, which some people say it's a concealed hammer. Well, it's not. It's a shrouded hammer. And it's it's a humpback mm-hmm. uh, shrouded hammer. And so you can still, if need, you want to, cock it to single action. And then probably my favorite configuration for a lot of reasons is that 442, 642, 640 centennial version with a completely enclosed internal hammer. Yeah. And and the advantage of that is 
pretty much that entire gun is sealed for foreign debris except near the you know inside the trigger guard in the back of the trigger yeah so it works good for pocket carry you know dirty dusty environments um you're just not going to get anything down in that gun that's going to lock up the internal lock works you know i take mine out and and once every four or five days because guns get dirty carrying on your ankle they do you know it's dust it's dirt it's it's even you know if you have dry skin you know that skin flakes down on the gun and so i've got a a a horsehair uh shoe brush that i just brush it down with other people get a paintbrush at lowe's and uh so yeah you're not not the grit and dust off of it and you know every so often you know drop the rounds i don't run a mop through it to, to knock the stuff out of the, out of the cylinders in the barrel and, and just, you know, you've got something that's going to, going to answer the call when you need it. Yeah. I always carried the, the enclosed hammer gun. Uh, my grandmother, you know, you talk about fire extinguisher guns. My grandmother had an old stainless bodyguard that, uh, I, I got to find out if that one's in my dad's safe. Cause I'd like to have that gun, but, uh, and then, every exposed hammer gun I ever had, I had the hammer, I had the hammer spur cut and, mm-hmm. and a lot of people would, would, you know, they, they, why'd you do that? And it's like, well, for the application of this gun, I don't need a hammer spur and well, you made it double action only. And I'm like, well, that's, that's not a bad thing. Um, no, the other, the other part of it was, I could still safely check the ammo for high primers. Now that's a, um, that is something that will shut a revolver off with a quickness. Right. Um, and that is an art form that we don't often teach to, uh, you know, with your finger off the trigger is to ease the hammer back about an eighth of an inch to unlock the cylinder latch and spin the cylinder and make sure it spins free. Uh, mm-hmm. that's, <laughs> that's something that, I mean, that is the, the Achilles heel. If you get some questionable ammo with a high primer. So, you know, I've had people, I've done that at the gun range when, you know, I'm shooting an in-service qualification or something like that. And they go, why do you, why do you close the cylinder and ease the hammer back and do that? And I mean, these are typically my peers that are, that are pretty pretty savvy but if they've never grown up with revolvers they don't they don't quite under they've never seen that before right they, so uh and with the bodyguard that was one of the nice things about the bodyguard is you could do that um i have seen people cock them single action and i was never a big fan of that because it was really difficult to do but uh well and for the for the listeners who aren't familiar you know smith Double action autos have a transfer bar mm-hmm. or transfer in there. And so you can pull the hammer back and drop it all day long. Unless that trigger is depressed, not gonna it's go not going to discharge. As a matter of fact, you can actually cock it to single action and you can slap the trigger with your finger and the trigger will come forward faster than hammer falls and it won't discharge. Now, I've done that in a demo with a primer only just to make the point uh, about the, the way that the pistols are designed. But, um, yeah, I've, I've done it, uh, on, on revolvers before just to, like you said, in a demo with a, a primer, um, and, you know, put them in single action and even the, even the Smith revolvers have a, have a safety system in them, a sliding transfer bar in them that will block. If the, if the trigger's not pulled, that bar will block the hammer from falling all the way forward. Um, yeah. And And that's what I shouldn't, I shouldn't have said transfer bar because that, that indicates that like in some others, it rises up to, to allow the hammer to strike the firing pin. And it's actually the, the hammer, block if you will that that had that gets moved out of the way when the trigger is pulled all the way to the rear and held now you mentioned another piece of kit earlier that i think uh some of the listeners would be 
intrigued about. Uh, you said dump pouch. Now, when most of the, I would say, recent trainees or, or recent people into the, the firearms world, when they think dump pouch, they think AR magazine comes out and I dump it in a pouch, right? <laughs> and when a couple old revolver guys say dump pouch, that has a totally different meaning, right? So talk about that for a second. Tell us all about a dump pouch. Let's let's go way, way back in history. The uniform dump boxes carried the rounds vertically and they were loose in that drum box and so when you it when you unsnapped it the box itself tilted outward and the loose rounds would dump into your hand and it was something now, you mounted on a sam brown belt right or exactly. like a wide leather belt and it had the Correct. snap the, the the actual opening of flap actually popped down right yeah, the opening was up and a snap came over it and secured it in a vertical position. And then when you broke that snap, the box fell out and somewhat down. Oh. The problem is, the problem is rounds would stick in that box. Hmm. So I don't remember where I saw it, but somebody really savvy put it in a book somewhere. So what we did was on the inside, uh, the inside or the back of that box, we took a knife and we cut a slot out. So when we tilted that box down, we ran our thumb in the back side of that box and pushed the rounds into our hand. Huh? There's no gunfighter trick. I didn't come up with it, but it worked. Well, my first exposure to them, uh, was some very early gear that was floating around. Uh, and I, I could not figure out what this pouch was for. And I asked our old range master and he goes, Oh, that's a dump pouch. You just dump loose ammo in that. And then you open it up and it falls right in your hand in, in every configuration, but the way you need it to put it in your gun. And we had a chuckle about it. And, uh, if any of the savvy listeners want to go, uh, look up Scotty Reitz from ITTS, he still has several functional ones. And he actually, uh, it's like story time with uncle Scotty. LAPD guy, you know, from D platoon. And he actually, uh, demonstrates it a couple of times. And when I hired on most of the guys that came out of the revolver era were still issued a 12 round, uh, loop loader. Right. And there was that, that, go ahead. Yeah. That came, that preceded the dump boxes. And if you looked at a lot of your, in the sixties, a lot of your highway patrol, or state police, they would carry those loop loaders. And what you would see in the loop was n- nice and shiny. It was a Winchester load that they called armor piercing. Yeah. But basically it was a copper bullet with a sharp point on it. And they, they, they would polish these things. So they looked good. Of course, you know, troopers have to look good first. Right. And the car and the Cardinal sin for a trooper is if he gets in a fight, if he loses his hat, that's a cardinal sin. Right. <laughs> they can't they can't lose their hat. But so that was the uniform drop box or dump pouch. The plain clothes carried the rounds uh, horizontally or laterally, if you will, would point down uh, or, or bullet down, rim up, and they the first ones would dump everything into your hand. Somewhere in the 60s, probably late 60s, mid to late 60s, some people came up with the idea that we can do better. So they built, instead of just one large opening to hold all six rounds, they did a two by two by two, which each little opening held two rounds. And so you could draw two and load at a time. And then that was a uh, an improvement. And then later, both the, the dump boxes for the uniform as well as plain clothes were enlarged to where you could run a speed strip in them. 
So you either pulled it out of your your vertical dump pouch or out of the the low profile one. You just picked the entire speed loader out, or excuse me, speed strip out, and use that as a reload. So that's kind of the progression. But truly, the slickest thing I ever saw that helped us is cutting the back out of those Sam Brown pouches so you could use your thumb in the back and just rake those rounds out into your hand. And, of course, the the only method that they taught us in 78 as far as the manual of arms was you took it and you you got to purchase around the run the uh, revolver with your off hand with your left hand if you're right hand shooter hit the thumb latch your two middle fingers come through the window and hold uh-huh. the cylinder with your thumb and your first finger uh, or your yeah, your first finger, your little finger, lay against the opposite side of the frame to secure it, and you dump it and you load, you close it, and and then reacquire purchase in your right hand. And other people have come up with different methods since then, but to teach a bunch of cops in the sixties and seventies, that was about as simple and, and is 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 easy a manual of arms as as you could teach in my mind. There's some others out there that may be faster. There's some that, that work better with speed loaders or full moon clips now that uh, that some people use, but uh, that's just what's in my DNA. Yeah, I watched uh, I watched my dad run a, uh, I think it was a model 64, 65, 19 something, and he put a loop loader on and he was loading two by two out of a loop loader and was good enough at it. He could almost keep up with an HKS speed loader. Uh, mm-hmm. but that was his pedigree. And when I was a very young cop, some of the old heads that, so I tell people we quit issuing revolvers in 1990. So our senior guys, I'm talking our, our, our old warriors on the street probably 50% of them back then still had revolvers. Um, and this is 2002. So you figure a guy hired on in 89 or 90 he's got 13, 14 years on in 2002 and maybe a revolver was all he knew. And if we were going in to do something dangerous on that 12, that, that 12 loop shell holder, they would reach down and pulse and stage six of them high, meaning they weren't yep. pushed all the way down in the loader. And you'd, it was something that I caught, caught on to, uh, that they just reached down and push six of those rounds up and stage them to where the round was more exposed than it was dropped into the loop. And, uh, I'd say, the way you do that. Well, I got a weird feeling about this one and they, you know, you'd see that and, uh, you know, on occasion, something might happen and a couple of those might fall out, but, uh, which is why they only did it with half their ammo. Right. And then you would see guys with a mixture that had a 12 loop loader, and then they might have a speed loader right in front of the holster on their gun. So, you know, as you're going from three o'clock, it might be like two thirty. there. They've got a, a speed loader pouch and then a 12 loop loader. So they'd have 18 rounds on the belt and six in the gun. Um, we would, that's, <laughs> that's some old trade would, craft, man. We would be remiss not to bring up the late, great Pat Rogers. Yeah. In that even when he was carrying a full blown duty rig from NYPD, which probably a model 10 at the time and drop boxes and a JP holster, which was pretty much a sack yeah, a sack with there wasn't much to it <laughs> yeah but you know if you you research it and daryl talks about it and some other people pat carried a chief special or a j frame in a deep sitting inside the waistband holster behind his speed loader pouch so if he was going to go for a reload if time was of the essence if you will the same place he's reaching, he could go behind his belt and grab his J frame. Yeah. And, 
And Daryl said he carried like that some. Yeah, my but dad just goes, carried like that with a with a uh, two inch round bat model thirteen, I believe. Yeah. So you know, deep inside the waistband appendix, all of this is is new, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the fallacies I think is everybody says that a new shooter or your wife or your girlfriend. The worst thing in the world you can give them is a small revolver. And and I contend just the opposite. Uh, as long as you follow some some rules. And one of the first things, the advantage that revolver has is an absolutely the most simplest manual of arms. That there's no safeties. If you pick it up and pull the trigger and it's maintained, you're going to get the end result. There's no slide to operate. There's no magazine to load. And more importantly, you can render it safe with one action or two actions, open the cylinder and dump the rounds. And you have visual verification. You've got five empty holes. And if police officers and people who uh, live with guns every day get dyslexic and clear around out of the chamber before removing the magazine and have unintentional discharges with, you know, negative effects, whether it's a hole in the floor or whether it's a hole in the leg. If they do this after their training, people that aren't going to be gun people that aren't going to spend money for a class with a reputable trainer and instill these kind of habits uh, a revolver is what makes sense. Now, if it's just a home revolver, would I recommend something larger than a J-frame? Absolutely. But the manual of arms, the safety of it, there are no sharp edges. The trigger is very forgiving. Unlike striker-fired uh, platforms, you have to be very deliberate in it, and it's, uh, and it's very forgiving in that you can start the pull and put weight on it. And then if a situation changes or you reassess the situation, it's a whole lot easier to get off that without it, you know, resulting in a loud noise than with a striker fired pistol. Yeah. I, I am, uh, I, I'm a fan of, of revolvers. I, it's, it's kind of hard to introduce a new shooter to me uh, into that platform. Uh, but for the fire extinguisher gun, the gun that's just going to set in the nightstand. I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a better platform out there than a wheel gun. Really? Honestly. I mean, no maintenance, no residual maintenance, very, very little maintenance at all. If you're not shooting it a lot, uh, my granddad, both my granddads were gun enthusiasts, both of them, um, from the, as long as I can remember, uh, my great granddad was a Colt dealer in the biz in the Bisley and single action era. So oh, wow. I got a little, I got a little history with wheel guns, right? Um, anyway, my, well, my mom's father, 19, he had 1911s. He had shotguns. He had all these different things. He kept a three inch nickel J frame in the nightstand. That was the. Well, your grandmother's not going to do anything silly with it. Right. You, you know, I mean, and, and I don't mean that like my grandmother wasn't capable, but, um, but she didn't shoot. She didn't care anything about shooting, but she wanted to have a gun in the house. So are we going to leave her with a four pound single action, 1911 and a manual of arms or a point that at that and pull the trigger gun. And if you need to make sure it's unloaded, you push the latch and there's either stuff there or there's, there's holes there, you know? Well, there are some weaknesses, and one of those is, particularly in some of your older guns, uh, the factory socks just are not optimal for a good purchase and, and, and good uh, distribution of the recoil. Uh, you know, you do have you, – you learn to live with limited ammo capacity. And as we've talked about before, you know, in 78 – they taught us you got six rounds to get it done 
in reality. And they taught us accuracy. And so we shot from 25 and 50 yards. Mm-hmm. You know, you got a short sight radius um, and modifications on, you know, modifications on the front sight or improvements on some guns can be expensive. You got to learn the DA trigger pull. The nice thing is put some snap caps in it and you can do that. And reloading is slower. But again, fire extinguisher guns, hopefully, particularly in a home defense environment or something like that, the the introduction of a self-defense pistol and maybe a discharge of one or two rounds hopefully will make them decide that they picked a very poor victim uh, it's been a poor choice of victims and they'll you know seek a an opportunity somewhere else yeah. you know common mistakes are you know using hot ammo mm-hmm. you know particularly with new shooters i mean you mentioned the uh what the 342 340 you know, PD. Oh, Scandi- 340 PD. Scandium titanium. It looks just like a 442 or a 642. Yeah. Uh, with a 357 and, Magnum titanium cylinder on a Scandium frame. Terrible idea for Magnum ammo. Oh, Terrible. it's insane. It's absolutely insane. Uh, I would, I've never owned the Scandium simply because it was so much more expensive than the alloys, and I was not going to shoot Magnums anyway. Um, but you and I have talked and, and we're in conversation with, with Mark and Daryl and some others that ideally, you know, the high performance ammo has two problems out of, out of a one and seven, eight inch, two inch barrel. The first is most of the time it doesn't shoot the point of aim. You know, the Hornady 110 critical defense shoots depending, you know, three to four inches low at, at 10 yards maybe seven yards. And some people would say, well, that's acceptable for, you know, what I'm going to do with it. Uh, I'm just not quite that comfortable with a pistol not shooting to point of aim at seven to 10 yards. And this other thing is the blast and the recoil is, is, Difficult to deal with if you haven't put proper stocks and you don't practice. And even with good stocks, that 135 gold dot short barrel load is still pretty brisk. Yeah. And so if you've got compromised hands, if you're uh, arthritis, older shooter, you've had some ligament damage, uh, or you're just not a shooter, then then that's going to torque is a detriment to you plus most of these loads don't expand out of one and seven eighths inch barrel even if they call them a short barrel load it's very difficult to get enough velocity so as as we've talked about probably ideal load is a soft shooting 148 grain wad cutter that you burn millions of rounds shooting ppc with all those years yeah if i'd have known i was launching good defensive ammo into the dirt i might have I might've stuck a little bit back, <laughs> you know, I might, I might've been a little more stingy with that stuff in that era. Uh, especially now that it's extremely difficult to find. And, uh, you know, I, I remember my granddad buying 38 wad cutter at Walmart of all places. Um, you know, just so that we could, that was a, his plinking load, right? Yeah. The, uh, the good thing is federal sells it on their website. And you can order it straight from federal. They're 148 going battle match. The bad news is a bo- they only sell it in a box of 50 and it's 49.95 a box. That's a, a dollar a pull. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my personal preference is I carry that 642. I'm a huge believer in Crimson Trace laser stocks. And if you'll give me a few minutes to address that. Yeah, for the for the five shot revolver, absolutely. Yep. Uh, number one, you got minimal sights. Uh, number two, most people 
to include law enforcement are going to be target focused and a threat. And that gives you an index and people say, well, what if he's got a red shirt on and you can't see the laser or the light's too bright? You haven't lost anything with the laser. You come back on your front sight like you normally would. But the laser gives you an option, whether it's compromised positions, whether it's low light, to effectively engage at some at some pretty decent distances. Um, and it gives you confidence. And not only that, but it's a wonderful dry fire tool. You put snap caps in it, make sure it's safe. And to, that laser will really tell you how well your grip and how well you're rolling that trigger. I got to tell you something else. Crimson Trace makes a phenomenal, they're fabulous stocks, regardless of the laser. That's specifically, that's, specifically those 405s, which are the compacts. Mm-hmm. And for those not familiar, the Crimson Trace 405 completely fills the gap behind the trigger guard. So you're not getting that, that knuckle bump. Mm-hmm. It has a palm swell, but it does. And so they are, they are relatively thin, but, but front to back, they're extended. And they've got that cushion to back strap to help absorb recoil. And so the whole thing is a rubber overmold, and it's absolutely the best stock on the market, particularly if you're ankle carrying or pocket carrying. Um, I, I can't say enough good things. And if you're, if you're, carrying a larger pistol or you're not going to pocket or ankle carry then they make i believe it's a 305 which extends probably close to a half an inch below the frame to really give you a full size grip for most people where they can get all four fingers on it um and i will tell you from personal experience without going into a lot of details i had someone uh that was reaching for a gun and when they looked down and saw a red dot on their chest, they decided that was a bad idea. And we ended that with nobody, you know, getting hurt and yeah. me not having to do a lot of paperwork. Yeah. Well, I, I've never been big on the laser thing, right? The ex, external visible laser. Um, my opinion on that has changed with the small revolvers. Um, and specifically with those because i i think we can if we get into autos i think we can kind of get into the people that are trying to crutch things and i i did find one very good use for uh an external laser on you know like the tlrs or one of the 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 bolt-on lights uh and that was if you were shooting around a ballistic shield Mm -hmm. um i thought that was an exceptional application of it uh but I don't know a whole lot of people that do that. And most of them that do train with it. So it's, <laughs> you, you, I'm in no jeopardy right now of carrying a ballistic shield and having to shoot around it. That those days are over. They're gone. Um, they're not, you know, that, that era is behind me now. So, uh, and in the era when that happened or when that, that was kind of a thing, it, you know, they, there was a lot of apprehension with the whole laser and, one of the reasons was when you have multiple people and multiple people were carrying lasers, it's a bad idea. Um, especially if you're shooting from compromised positions, because it just looks, it turns into a laser light show, but a home defense gun or a pocket J frame, uh, absolutely get after it. Great. I, I think they're a great tool. Uh, so in October of 2003, Crimson Trace hosted hosted the Master Trainers Summit up in Washington. And it's available on YouTube. And there were some skeptics there that walked away as true believers. And names of some of the people were there were Ken Hackathorn and Jim Cirillo, who was kind of an ambassador for Crimson Trace for a while. Yeah. And... The Mr. Ernest Langdon was there, yeah, and Bob Talbert was there, who his writing writes under Bob Pilgrim or did, who was a career FBI agent. And if you look at, you know, what they did, and it was four days of nothing 
but understanding and running lasers. And it was put on my crimson trace and led by my friend Clyde Caceres. And those, you know, those people came away truly understanding what you just said. And, uh, you know, I think Marty Hayes was there. I forget everyone that was there, but uh, there were some notable people that walked away with a better understanding. It's interesting to note that several years ago, the um, there's a police department in Asia that was getting ready to buy new guns. And they were trading in their J-frames and they wanted new guns. And Clyde Caceres had contacts over there, and he convinced them that they should put Crimson Trace laser grips on every single new pistol. 10,000 pistols. 10,000 pistols. Uh, Clyde approached Smith because Smith was a shoe in to replace Model 36 with new guns. And the Smith representative pretty much said they're never going to buy 10,000 lasers, and we're not interested. Anyway, Clyde approached Taurus and that agency dumped Smith and Wesson revolvers and went to Taurus handguns or Taurus small frame revolvers with crimson trace laser grips. Wow. Now, granted, they probably had one shooting every three years. I mean, it was a very right, you know, different culture, different, different applications. Very much so. But you know, once you get your gun, if you're you just you have like everything else, it's a perishable skill. Um, I, you have to be willing to test yourself and really understand your capabilities. So, shoot the super snubby. Shoot a five by five by five. You know, five rounds five yards, five seconds, do it two times in a row on a B-27. Not a B-20, I'm, excuse me, a B-8, not a B-27. <laughs> Let me yeah. correct myself before I get jumped on here. Well, you there know, was a fast... long history with the B-27 today that was discussed on a uh, text message thread, so I can understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I still had that one in my mind. You know, how fast can you come out of pocket and put around into, into a three by five card, which could represent either the cardiac region or, you know, cranial vault region. Um, you know, Daryl calls it, you know, a pocket carry with your hand on the already in a firing grip, just walk around town. And he calls it the, uh, covered low ready covered. I want to always say concealed. I know that. Yeah. Covered low ready. And so, if ever in the real world, you're going to reach the mythical one second presentation and shot on target, that's about the only way you're really going to do it. And, you know, you talked about Hanny doing it at Revolver Roundup. And I think the, the uh, listeners may be interested in that story. Oh, yeah. I forgot. We said that in uh, take one, take two. Yeah. Um, little backstory one of our favorite guests haney mcmood uh i assisted him with about a uh i think it was a two-hour block on just the lost art of the backup gun and we pressure tested a number of concepts on a timer uh that's the only time i have ever dropped from my hands a gun that was at slide lock on purpose so way to go haney uh convinced me to drop my gun in the dirt and go from a pocket gun. Uh, but he, at one point he has the students in front of him. He's got his left hand in his pocket. So his left arm is kind of in like in line with downrange. And he hands me a timer and he said, I don't care when, but sometime in the next one minute while I'm giving this briefing, I want you to just hit the timer. And he starts into the next block of instruction about 
pocket carry and the benefits and this and that. Now he has the students put their eyes and ears on and everybody's wearing electronic ears. So it's a, it's a, a contained environment. It's not, Oh, I wrung everybody's ear, whatever. It's, it, it's perfectly safe. Right. Um, and they don't really know what's getting ready to happen, but they kind of got an idea because I've got a timer up here behind his head where he can't see it in his peripheral vision. And they're kind of looking at me and looking at Hanny and looking at me. And I hit the timer and in 0.86 of a second, he draws from the pocket uh, and parks around in the head box of a an anatomical target inside of a three by five card size window inside of that target in point eight six. Um, and all, and you know, by the time that happened, everybody that was involved in the class kind of knew what was coming. Uh, but I don't think had ever really maybe seen that. And Hanny and I hadn't rehearsed it. And he tells him, he goes, you know, the, the sub second draw, that's a legit sub second street draw because I'm at this covered low ready position. And as soon as I made the decision, which was as soon as I, I reacted to this auditory stimulus that I was able to complete that. And he, and I said, well, when was the last time you did that? And he goes, Oh, I don't know a year or two. So with almost no recent practice, well, I guess no recent practice, uh, he was able to do that and, and do it on demand and not okay shooter ready stand by here it comes um he was in the midst of talking about his hand position on the gun when i hit the timer and bam um so that was a really uh and and the students watching their eyes get real big and go wow that was that was impressive right um it really sold it really drove home the point of you know, you're never going to beat somebody with their hand on their gun in a draw. And, uh, that was faster. It was almost like a punch. I mean, that was faster than a normal human could react to. So, uh, yeah. So that, and, and for the record, it was in a very real realistic target. And the hit was in such position where it would have caused instantaneous shutdown of the perpetrator it, it was not it was not a wing periphery shot on a huge silhouette right and he did it out of a uh, don hume pocket holster that i gave him for his birthday because his was worn out and i had one i didn't use so uh you know you i didn't was give you didn't you didn't give him one of rods made out of some exotic animal skin my cape buffalo holster is mine and mine only <laughs> but uh which brings me kind of, I want to round this, this whole discussion out a bit. Um, I'll go first, uh, and then I'll get, I want to get your opinion for me. If somebody wants to explore the J frame, uh, my, my recommendation is go get a four, four, two or a six, four, two off the rack Smith and Wesson. I prefer the ones with no side lock. Um, a mica pocket holster or a Don Hume pocket holster and 148 wad cutters. That's, that's kind of the combination I go with, uh, that, and that's, I, I kind of want to hear what your, your take on that is. If somebody said, man, Rob, I'm, you know, I'm a new policeman and I'm looking for that off duty carry pocket gun. And I think a J frame might fit. What's, what's yours? Well, I'm going to say he's off to a good start because he's he's already got a good idea of what he's looking at. Because truly, the 442, 642, they're alloy. They're plus P rated. They are reasonably uh, priced, you know, foreign change, maybe, mm-hmm. if you shop around. Um, they are smaller and less bulky, and that's not necessarily redundant, than an LCR. The Rugers just don't particularly do it for me. I know Daryl and some other people really sold on, on the LCRs, and I've been running a Smith too long. I had a 22 long rifle and a 38 version, and I just 
couldn't warm to them. Combination of the trigger and just the sights. I just could not get accustomed to it. So 442, 642, 148 grain wad cutters. Um, if you're sitting a lot, if you're driving a lot, pocket carry has its limitations. It works when you're standing up. Ankle carry can offset that if you're sitting or driving. I don't think there's anything better for the money than the ankle glove. There's no retention device. It's molded. And the neoprene cuff will stretch with your ankle just enough where uh, some of the other rigs, I carried a Lualesi rig. I carried a, a, a Ken Null rig back in the day, and it was a leather cuff with really dense uh, sheep's wool behind it. And they work well for the time, but I've grown to really like the stretch of the neoprene cuff. Uh, the nice thing is you're sitting in a restaurant. You know, it's not uncommon when I'm sitting in a restaurant, either I'll step to the restroom and before we get ready to walk to the car, I'll transfer it to my pocket and I walk out with a, you know, uh, a covered low ready if need be, mm -hmm. depending on the environment. So it gives you that flexibility. The J frame also tucks really nice, even without a holster uh, in the appendix position, just for, you know, short term carry. Uh, the biggest thing besides ammo in practice are stocks. And I really want to want to delve in that because I will tell, say that the existing stocks that Smith and Wesson puts on their guns now are not bad. They aren't my favorite. They're a little bit tacky and I, and the shape doesn't fit me really well. Uh, the older stocks that uncle Mike's made for them to the boot grips, which were patterned after Craig Spiegel boots, uh, while they were hard rubber, they weren't tacky, and so they worked well. Uh, unfortunately, those rubber stocks, because they haven't been made in years, are bringing $80, $90, $100 on eBay these days. It's just insane. So Packmire is offers a couple of options, both the compacts and the larger ones. If um, Again, if pocket carry is not an option, Put the biggest grip on the gun that is most comfortable for you if you're not going to be dropping it in a pocket. Um, with the older style Smith stocks that were wood that contoured to the frame, you know, Tyler T grips were wonderful because they filled the front strap and, and, and behind the trigger guard, they didn't increase the size of the pistol. Uh, Tyler's really hard to come by now. They're very slow in filling orders, but BK uh, does a polymer version and you'll get it in about a week. Outstanding company. Um, Altamont makes some, some different stocks. If you want something more traditional or a little fancy. Um, but the Hogue Tamers, uh, the Pacmire compacts are, are by far for someone learning to shoot for the first time with one, get the proper stops and stay away from hot ammo. Um, you know, you mentioned holsters. You really have to practice with pocket holes because even some of the good ones, if you're not careful, will come out with the gun. Yeah. If, if, if you come straight up with it out of a big slash pocket, there's a chance it's going to come up with it. Um, Uncle Mike's is not a bad rig. Now on with a little tacky band around it for $14 on eBay. Um, we talked about Rob. It's simply rugged. Makes mm -hmm. some gorgeous stuff. I still have yet to uh, to get one of his. I talked to him, and I just never pulled the trigger to order one. But if I'm going to keep up with you and DB and, and Hanny, I guess I'm going to have to get one in Cape Buffalo or something fancy. Well, he's got a few on there that I – I get on his website and lust over, but I was going to throw one more plug for, if we're talking, you know, holsters and all that. And yeah. And I'll preface it with, I am not a paid indoor C, uh, <laughs> at all. People ask me that a lot. They're like, you know, you run that, you, you mentioned this, do they give you any? No. Uh, Sam Dizonia at wilderness has re-released the renegade ankle holster, which I, back in my young police days, 
there was a PO box. You had to send a self-addressed stamped envelope and a return. It was archaic, right? You had to send it to some PO box in the middle of somewhere. And like six weeks later, you would get this, you know, mailer that had a renegade holster in it. Um, and by the way, you had to write a check and send it with the order. You did. You did indeed. And, and, and that was my first, uh, ankle rig. My dad gave me an old Galco ankle rig. I never did great rig. I just never fell in love with it. But, uh, while I was at revolver roundup, uh, I met with Sam and I said, that looks just like the renegade. And she held it up and the tag says renegade by wilderness. Uh, and I was like, I think I will have one of those. Thank you. Um, Wil- wilderness did some, has been doing some cool stuff for a long time and they've just kind of, I don't, I don't want, they've been, they've been a well-kept secret. I mean, that little, um, is it a safe packer? Yeah. This little pouch that you can put on your belt. That's really innocuous looking to put a small pistol in. I mean, they've done a lot of cool stuff over the years. Yeah. And they're run by some great people, but, uh, that, that renegade ankle holster, um, I won't say I was moved to tears when I saw it, but it, it harkened back to a place, uh, that, that I was many, many years ago with, uh, you know, carrying backup guns. So, well, Rob, Any, uh, I, Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Anything else out of revolver roundup that you just wanted to kind of throw out here? Yeah. If you got the opportunity go, <laughs> it's a, you know, yeah, I don't think you'll ever go to gunsight in a more affordable format. And it is, uh, I will say it is a, it is a niche thing. And the guys that are there, you will see everything, every customized cool revolver from every customized cool builder. Uh, you'll see historic guns. You'll see, and you'll learn how they were used and how to use them. Uh, you know, everything from Colt Cobras to detective specials, to King Cobras, to pythons, to, I, I mean, it is for a revolver guy. I don't think there's another place you'll ever go and not and see people that actually carry and use these things still. Um, I did have the distinction. I was the third youngest person there. So that gave me some hope for the next generations. Um, I was 38. Caleb Giddings is four or I'm 42. Caleb Giddings was 40. And there was another kid there that was 38 years old and God bless him. Uh, but, but there again, uh, you'll see every form of loader, uh, Mark Fricky, that guy is a historian on how to manipulate a revolver and how to, re- how to efficiently load one. Um, you know, it, it, I don't think there's a better resource out there that you can immerse yourself in, um, all at once. <laughs> so, and do it at gunsight. So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll throw a plug to those guys, Daryl and those guys that registration for revolver roundups open. Uh, and it's, it's in November at gunsight. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of, if nothing else, if a guy goes one time, you will have a, an immersion of, of history and that it's an education you can't buy. (laughs) So, well, I guess you can't buy it. You can pay the admission, but, but you can't buy the, the, the level of training and, and the level of appreciation, um, you know, I mean, for instance, I will give the for instance here. Uh, I met a guy that had been involved in multiple gunfights that carried four J frames, carried two, you know, a left hand, right hand appendix and a left hand, right hand behind the hip. And, uh, it was not without good reason. I'll, you know, you know what I mean? It, there, there was purpose behind why he did that. Uh, everything from that to guys that were historical collectors, um, just coming to see how people trained with them. And, and so, yeah, it was a fa- fabulous event, but, uh, I just wish it wasn't the weekend before Thanksgiving. That yeah. makes it tough. If you got family commitments coming up to fly back in on a late Tuesday night with Thanksgiving starting on Wednesday, that, that makes it tough for me being on the East coast, but I'll make it one day. 
Yep. And, uh, there's, you know, that's not my event, but I'll, uh, they're aware. <laughs> so, well, and, and, you know, last year they had to take what was open when yeah. they decided to have it. And, and I've heard nothing but good things about it. And if you haven't been to gun site, uh, I was fortunate to several years ago to go to a, a writer's event out there. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, we even had a reception at Buzz Mills mansion up on the hill. And then I went back shortly thereafter and, uh, I was out for a law enforcement conference and I had a personal connection through Mrs. Cooper through a mutual friend that had trained, that was one of the original instructors. So I reached out to her and, and her daughter and I was able to spend a good part of late morning and early afternoon, uh, me and my wife and Janelle Cooper at the Scots. Wow. Just the three of us. And she taught history. Uh, we went down in the gun room and the room was just like it was in Cooper on handguns when Peterson published it. The same Super 9 was hanging in the same place. The, 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 the scout rifle was, it was just an amazing piece of history. And she allowed me to take a lot of photographs to include uh, actually opening up some of the drawers where his holsters were and taking some, some pictures of his holsters. And, you know, he was known to those close to him to carry a model 60 from time to time. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good, uh, I think that's a good place to drop off, check out revolver roundup. And if you get the chance to go to gun site as, uh, as our, our, our mutual bud, Ken Campbell says, when are you coming to gun site? <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rob Garrett, for coming back, living with the living with J frames. Oh, reminder, check out our sponsors, CCW safe, EDC belt company, the guardian conference and the concealed carry podcast giveaway. Remember CCW safe off duty. 10 will get you 10% off your membership. EDC belt co, uh, got some stuff in the pipe on that too. So, uh, Check it out at edcbeltco.com. A reminder, if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. That helps me out. And if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, you want to become a sponsor of the podcast, reach out to me through the website. I'll put uh, your people in charge or (laughs) put your people in contact with my people. And uh, we'll see if we can't make that happen for you. The Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.